0: Boy, it's been good to be gathered together in worship today through our orchestra and our uh, choir and Linda and Brent, John, thank you. Dan, thank you for leading us. What's stirring, stirring uh, corporate worship through music this morning, and so I'm thankful that you're here, Galatians chapter 6, so I'm going to invite you to turn with me this morning, Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. The first time I heard you reap what you sow was on the football field, but it wasn't through those words. It wasn't the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians introducing me to that phrase, but it was a football coach who would oftentimes say this phrase. Now, now for those of you that played football in junior high, or whether you played football in high school or college or beyond, uh, coaches have phrases, preachers have phrases, teachers have phrases. This coach had a phrase, uh, practice like you're going to play. Practice like you are going to play. Now, he had a lot of phrases, but that's one phrase I could share on Sunday morning right there. Practice like you're going to play. I never pressed him on it, but the whole principle was is that if you loaf through practice on Monday, don't expect to win the game on Friday night. If you're half-hearted in your devotion on Tuesday afternoon in practice, don't expect to turn on the Jets and and win the game on, on Friday. Practice like you're going to play. You reap what you sow. That your decisions and my decisions, that what we decide today It it does affect our tomorrow. That what you decide, what I decide, it does have an effect on our tomorrows. Your decisions matter. Paul would say it this way in Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, specifically verse 7, you reap what you sow is where we get that phrase. He starts in verse 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, you think, what is he talking about here? This seems to be out of place. He's talking in this context about our communal obligation to bear one another's burdens, how we're to love one another, how we're to care for one another, and then all of a sudden he inserts this, help I pay the person who teaches God's word. Now, it should not be a surprise to us, because through the entirety of the book of Galatians, he's refuting what? False teachers. So this insertion here in verse 6 isn't that surprising. It's a communal responsibility, especially in the context of the false teaching in the churches in Galatia that he is he is calling us he's imploring us to have those that are called to to preach God's word and to shepherd God's word and to support those and so verse 6 is a very practical verse and it is connected to what has come before it verse 6 is a verse that you as a congregation so faithfully heed i stand before you called by God I don't have to have a tent-making profession. Uh, many of our other ministers, all of our ministers and our, and our, our staff and our pastors, they, they don't have to be bivocational because verse 6 is a verse that this church has for 95 years and continues to take very seriously. So it is a privilege to stand before you and to say thank you for the joy. I have tremendous respect for bivocational pastors. Tremendous respect, I have family members that are bivocational pastors, have a, a job, and, and they study at 3.30 in the morning, and they go to work, and then they do hospital visits at night, and it's a tremendous calling, but, but you as a church, you, you allow me, you allow others on our staff to live out the calling that God has placed us singularly to equip the saints for the work of the ministry through the shepherding of God's word. And you support us in that. So I say what a privilege and what a joy it is to serve in your midst in in a verse 6 way. Now he continues uh, from verse 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap what? Eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Don't give up, Paul says. Don't give up sowing goodness here. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Uh, This is an agricultural metaphor that really leads us to one statement and one question. One statement this morning and one question. Here's the statement. What you decide today defines your tomorrow. What you decide today defines your tomorrow. The decisions that you make, the decisions that I make, they have repercussions, they have consequences. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. Verse 7, chapter 6, don't be deceived, he says. He's constantly having to remind these Galatian Christians Don't fall under the bewitchment of false teachers who would say that your decisions have no consequences for your life or for my life. We have something to heed this morning, and that is God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap. Future, our future, your future, my future is shaped by the choices that you and I make today. Our future is shaped not entirely, but it is shaped by the choices that we make in the days that God gives us here on the earth. It has eternal consequences and earthly consequences for us. Now, it seems obvious, doesn't it? Uh, many of you that are sitting in the pew say, well, of course, you read what you say. I'll understand that principle. But you need to understand within our culture that this is, is streaming against the stream. It is swimming against the stream of popular sentiment. That there is a sentiment that really flies in the face of personal responsibility, and that solely is that, that we are primarily not the products of decisions that we make, but we're primarily the products of circumstances around us that shape us. So who you are and who I am, oftentimes we'll hear, is, is no more that we're defined by our birthplace and our birth order. That who we are is our parents' successes or our parents' failures. That who we are is no more than a a compilation, a compilation of a genetic disposition. Or that we're confined and defined and refined by our injustices and tragedies that happen in our life. Now listen, all of these factors, they deeply shape us. All of these factors create who you are and who you are becoming. Certainly, Paul is not excluding those circumstances that are external to us. Of course not. But in the midst of this, he is saying, you reap what you sow. Now, it's an agricultural metaphor. It's an agrarian metaphor. Now, some of you in this room, you, you've got some farming background. You, you remember very well. I remember going to my grandfather's house, and he had a big garden in the back. We go to my grandmother's house. He had a big garden in the back. We're, the back. we're, we're removing ourselves oftentimes from from where our food actually comes from. But some of you know that what, what it is to put your hand in soul, and you know what it's like if you haphazardly plant in the sowing season, don't expect that you're gonna have this right return in the harvest. Especially in Paul's day, to haphazardly plant would mean that people would be destitute when they came to the harvest. They they could they could starve. So what Paul is saying is something that we understand But it oftentimes is played out in our personal relationships. That that child who doesn't study spelling test words can't expect that it's going to all click for him or her when he or she takes the test. We understand that. We understand this in the primary relationships. If we give are leftovers to these primary relationships, we can't expect that we're going to have the harvest of fruitful, joy-filled lives. We, we just cannot expect. If we don't invest intentionally, we cannot expect that there is going to be healthy growth in things that are vitally important to us. When Danielle and I got married, we got married at a, a young season of our life. I was uh, still in college. She was still in college. Way too, or I, 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 it's one of these things, we got married early, and I, I never recommend it, but I would not change a bit about it. We just sort of grew up together. And what, what, what happened is there were these wonderful people that came alongside of us, especially in churches that we served that just mentored us and loved on us. Let me tell you about Jimmy and Susan Harrison. Jimmy and Susan Harrison were, they were uh, volunteers in our student ministry. They had raised their kids. They had grandkids. They didn't have children in the student ministry, but they just invested in the student ministry. And in that season, that meant that they needed to invest in the student minister who just got married while he was there at the age of 20. I had kids in the student ministry that were 17 and 18 years old, and I was their student pastor. So what Jimmy and Susan Harrison did is that they came alongside of us, and I can still remember them buying me this big uh, cassette tapes of the Dave Ramsey financial piece. You need to listen to these, David. William Harley's His Needs, Her Needs. I remember Susan giving that to Danielle. Y'all need to read this. And they, they just came alongside of us in resources, and they modeled to us. I mean, they had been married for over 45 years, which just seemed to be an eternity for us at that season of life. And I remember asking Jimmy, I so said, Mr. Jimmy, you got to tell me, I mean, you seem to love your wife, and she seems to love you, and y'all are serving together, and you like to be with one another. How, how, how did this happen here? And this is what he said, you, David, cannot build a marriage on your leftovers. You cannot build a marriage on your leftovers. You can't li- build a marriage on your leftover time. You can't bear- build a marriage on your leftover commitment. You've got to invest your best time. You've got to be- invest your best energy into your marriage for it to reap the harvest of joy decades down the road. And he's right. Many of you that are in this room that have beautiful marriages and no marriage is perfect, Jimmy and Susan Harrison's marriage wasn't, uh, my marriage to my wife, certainly none none of us are claiming that, but there's a sense in which are are we giving our second-rate time, our third-rate commitments to something that is a first-rate priority in our life. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if if we're in a marriage and we're giving our leftovers to it that it will not have this ripe harvest of joy down the road. That, That should not surprise us. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. So, hey, if you're married in this room, there, there should be some takeaways. There, there should be some questions that you're asking. Am I investing my spiritual energy into my marriage? Am I praying for my spouse on a daily basis? That's a, that's a simple question. But I think it's a good diagnostic question. Every day, do you lift up the needs of your spouse? Are you praying with your spouse? That's another step that you can take. Some of you say, well, I'm not married to a spouse that would feel comfortable with that. Well, how about you pray that God maybe opens those doors and maybe down the road, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, and maybe 10 weeks down the road, God would give that opportunity here. Are we praying for our spouse? Are we praying with our spouse? Do we have hobbies that we share together? Not just raising the kids together, but are there things outside of kids, the things outside of work that we love doing, Then we prioritize that we're going to do these things together? I don't know what that is for you. Maybe that's going to football games for you. Maybe that's going hunting for you. Maybe that's going shopping. It's certainly not shopping in, in my marriage here. So, but one of the things that we, we love music, Danielle and I did, And I can just look back over life and and see many of our anniversaries and many of our trips just around concerts that we went to see. I, I remember early on our marriage going to Atlanta to Phillips Arena and seeing Simon and Garfunkel. They got back together. Art Garfunkel, Paul Simon, they get back together. And we were around all these people and they looked at us and they said, why are you here? You're so young. A couple months ago, we went to a concert in Tuscaloosa and we, we were there around the crowd and everybody looked at us and said, why are you here? You're so old. So it's just, and it was this wonderful realization that literally everybody was at this concert could have been our kids. So find something. I don't know what that is. You reap what you sow. Are you investing in your marriage? We could, we could extrapolate that to many other things here, but we move on. Here's one statement. What You decide today defines your tomorrows. A question. What are you deciding today that is defining your tomorrows? Let me ask that again. What are you deciding today that is defining your tomorrows? Go back to the passage. Verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap what? corruption. Some of your translations, it doesn't say corruption, it says decay. It says decay, corruption, decay. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap what? Not corruption, not decay. What does it say? Eternal life. So the question that Paul is posing to us in verse 8 is, is what field are we planting in? Are we planting in the field of the flesh or are we planting in the field of the Spirit? Are, are we feeding the flesh or are we fighting the flesh? Are we, are we walking with the Spirit? Are we being led by the Spirit? Or are we grieving the Spirit and coddling our flesh? Now, it's always important, and i talked about this earlier. We're walking through the book of Galatians, so we've talked about this before. Flesh isn't your skin, Sarks in the original language of the new testament it talks about our sinful disposition it talks about our sinful nature it talks about a world that wants to shape us and conform us into its image so the flesh is all that is against god god has given us through his son jesus through the gospel of christ he has given us ultimate victory over that right yes if you are a believer you have ultimate victory over that old sinful nature You have ultimate victory over that flesh. But while that is our ultimate destination, to get to that ultimate destination, there are battles here on earth, and we still can give into our flesh. We still can feed our flesh. When will you be wholly victorious over your flesh? Well, it is when he comes in his second coming, or you, Christian, meet him in death. Until then, there's a battle. There's a battle whether or not I am going to crucify self. No longer I live, Galatians 2, verse 20, but Christ lives in me. What does he mean here? We're crucifying flesh. We're denying flesh. And we're walking in the Spirit. So am I sowing seeds in the flesh or am I sowing seeds in the Spirit? John Stott. John Stott's a great Anglican rector, great commentator of God's word. He he helps us to specifically answer this question by giving us some examples. Feeding the flesh or killing the flesh? Stott says, every time that we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure thought, or wallow in self-pity, we're doing what? Stott says, we're sowing in the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company, every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying, every time that we gaze upon pornographic material, every time we take a risk which strains our self-control, we're sowing, 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 he says, to the flesh. That destruction, for those of us who are not believers in this room, for those of us who have never turned to Christ for our salvation, That that destruction, that destination is corruption that has an eternal, eternal harvest, which is a separation from him forever. On earth, you can be a believer, and the harvest that you receive of corruption is an unholy trinity of self. You know what that corruption looks like? It is self-indulgence, it is self-absorption, and it is self-reliance. You want to know if you're sowing in the flesh, it is where you are self-absorbed, you are self-reliant, and you are self-indulgent. This is what it looks like to sow in the flesh. We reap corruption. Again, I told you that some of your translations say decay. It's it's the same essence here, but there's something that's sort of vivid about decay, isn't it? We, We could see that got examples of things that decay over time. You can go to the dentist and talk about tooth decay. You can you could see uh, homes that decay over a period of time here. Why is that? Because there's neglect. Homes that decla- decay, there's neglect that occurs. Uh, teeth that decay, it's neglect that occurs. And so when we neglect to sow in the spirit, there is a decay in our spiritual life. And that decay, it has, uh, for a Christian, it has implications that are not necessarily eternal first and foremost, but they're earthly, earthly ramifications. So, think about this. If you're harboring resentment and you're harboring frustration with a coworker, what happens? It decays that work environment. It doesn't fix itself. That's the illusion. Oh, I can harbor this resentment. I can harbor this frustration, and it's just all going to work out. No, it it decays. It makes it oftentimes a toxic relationship. If you're a husband and you're a wife, and you allow bitterness to build, you allow unforgiveness to fester, what happens? It ends up to be this rottenness decay that is at the heart of your marriage. That can happen. That can happen. If you're an employee who compromises her or his integrity over little decisions, over a a long period of time, it ends up decaying your what? Your integrity, your trustworthiness, and the, the little things, those little compromises, they end up building into a lifestyle of dishonesty and compromise. When we give ourselves to impure thoughts, when we give ourselves to impure images, it decays our purity. There, there's no other way to see this. Pa- Paul, Paul is not saying, hey, here's a multiple choice. How is this going to end up? It is corruption that it ends up. It is decay that it ends up. Now, on the flip side, when we plant in the Spirit, notice that Paul says in verse 8, we reap eternal life. So a person who is a follower of Jesus, planting in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, this is an indication that we are a follower of him, and there is a destination that is before us, and that destination is in eternity with him. But also, verse 9 and verse 10, give us very specific outgrowths of planting in the spirit. Uh, Very specific ways that your life looks different and my life looks different. And again, just see it. Be reminded what he says in verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. What Paul is saying in this passage is, is that when we walk in step, chapter 5, we walk in step with the Spirit. We're not grieving the Spirit, but being filled with the Spirit. There is love and joy and what's one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit? Goodness. Goodness. And so that goodness isn't just a personal goodness, like your uh, goody two-shoes. That's not what Paul is saying, that your goodness, it goes out to the people that you work with. It goes out to the people that your neighbors to. It goes out to your family. That goodness is as an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Is what we're called to show people so that they may see our good works and pat you on the back. No. Jesus was saying the Sermon on the Mount, so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Your goodness is a billboard of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Your goodness is an advertising campaign that you are a follower of Jesus in a world that is cynical, in a world that is so skeptical, in a world that is harsh and bitter. That is the tone of the world in which we live in. Your goodness is this counter strategy given to us by the holy spirit to show there is something different about her and that something is the holy spirit in you that something is you walking in the spirit now what would that look like in your life well there's a there is a universal call in this passage verse 9 he says do good to everyone you don't have to be sherlock holmes this isn't a mystery for you to solve This isn't an Agatha Christie novel that you've got to figure out who do I need to be good to? I cannot for the life of me figure this out. No, when you're walking in the Spirit, you're not walking in self indulgence and self reliance, but your eyes gaze up, and the Spirit has a honing mechanism that leads you to people who need the goodness of Christ to rub off on them. They're hurting, they're not followers of Jesus. And and you you can't make that happen. It is the Spirit of God who desires to do that in and through you. So it's a universal call to love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're all called to do, the great commandment. But there's also a particular call. Do you notice in this passage, in verse 10, he says, especially do good to those who are of the household of faith. So one aspect of being in the community that we call Dawson is that we have people who want to lift us up and not beat us down. We can know that this is a safe place. This is a place to hurt. This is a place to go through tragedy. This is a place to grieve. This is a place to go through sinful times in our life because we have people who are going to support us, pray for us, and do good to us. That's why we need to be in the church. There, there, there's no such thing as long rangers in the Christian community. We, we need one another. We need one another to come alongside of us, and we need the goodness and the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the gentleness and the self-control to rub off on us when we at times are not walking in the Spirit, but we're feeding the flesh. And so Paul in this passage, he, he calls us to show goodness to those that are hurting. God, I have no idea what that could look like for your life. But for some of you, you brought Operation Christmas Child boxes to show the goodness of Christ in your life to people who maybe do not know Jesus. There's some of you in this room that have adopted someone during the Christmas season. And you, you've got a list of, of, of sizes of shoes and shirts and things that they like, whether they're a boy or a girl, what their age is. And you're doing that because of the goodness of Christ that is in you some of you that are in this room that you, 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 you have people that are neighbors who cannot do things in their home and in their yard and so you come alongside of them and you pay to have it done or you, you do it with the leaves that need to be raped there's some of you that are in life groups that you see you, no one says it but you just can see and you can hear the struggle and the tenor of their voice and so you say hey Can we get together this week? I'd love for us just to grab coffee. And so the goodness of Christ in your life and in my life, there's a myriad of ways that God desires for that to flow through you in your school environment, in your work environment, in your neighborhood environment. And guess what? There is a harvest that comes from that. People that are comforted. People that see the goodness of Christ in you and say, what is different about this person? And and they glorify and they say, boy, I I need to have what he has. I need to have what she has. And and God uses this as as pre-evangelism to be able to draw our hearts to the validity and veracity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's certain people that just live these kinds of lives And we pause and we just see how they live their lives in this kind of public way. And and one person that comes to mind is, is a guy by the name of Fred Rogers. I don't know if you've seen this, but Tom Hanks is going to be Mr. Rogers in the latest movie that comes out on Tuesday. It's a, it's a movie that really, really isn't a biopic of Fred Rogers when he was born and where he grew up. That's not the point of it, but it is a true story of a journalist's encounter with Fred Rogers at a difficult season of this journalist's life. It's a, it's a great story to be familiar with. Now, I've not seen the movie. I have no idea what the movie's going to be like. I saw the preview last night for it, and I was just struck by how I almost see this preview and just cry, because there's just this goodness that emanates from his life. Many of you remember this. In my 825 service, at the 825 service, I had to sort of set the context. But uh, in 1983, there was a show called The Tonight Show. Johnny Carson, when he's not hosting it, would oftentimes have Joan Rivers to be the stand-in host. There's an eight-minute segment that's worth Googling and watching where Fred Rogers shows up and is interviewed by Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers, for those of you who don't know, she had this kind of acerbic wit about her. She was sharp. She would come. She was sort of scandalous at times. And so she tries to unnerve Fred Rogers. She tries to get him out of his comfort zone. So she kind of sort of makes fun of his cardigan sweaters, and he is unfout. Uh, uh, un, unmoving in this. He's still the kind person that you would imagine him to be. Tries to get him to admit illicit encounters. And, and, and again, he just shows kindness. And so the whole thing is this, this routine that you could imagine. And then there becomes this moment that is absolutely transcendent that occurred in 1983 on The Tonight Show where Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, started singing to Joan Rivers And all of the artifice, all of the posturing just sinks in that moment. And she is overwhelmed by this song. It's you I like. It's not the things that you wear. It's not the way you tell the jokes that you tell. But it's you I like. The way you are right now way down deep inside you not the things that hide you well they're just beside you there's nervous laughter at the outset when he begins to sing but there is a holy hush that comes over that audience because in that moment the goodness of this ordained Presbyterian minister who for decades championed the imago Dei the image of God on a weekly television show that said, God has made you and you are, well, you know something? You're not accidental. There was something about that moment that was goodness on display. Now, none of us in this room are most likely going to have the platform of the Tonight Show. None of us in this room are going to have that type of visible platform, but I want you to know that someone who is your neighbor, someone who is your classmate, someone who is your coworker, someone who lives in the same house with you needs that kind of goodness to rub off on their hurting heart. And my question to you is, will you see that God has placed you where you are for such a A time as this, that where you go to school is not accidental, where you work is not accidental, where you uh, do anything, whether it's shopping or where you live, it's not accidental, but it is the providential platform that God has given you to show the glory of God through your good work works, your love and your joy and your peace and your patience and your kindness and your goodness and your gentleness your faithfulness and self-control the fruit of the spirit that a hurting, dying world needs to see and when they see it there's oftentimes a holy hush Lord may it be so gracious God, we come to you this morning thankful for your word and a calling, an invitation to us this morning to be vessels for you, to be vessels for you and where you've placed us, to be salt, to be light. We can't do this in our own strength. We can only do this through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. So we pray that we would repent of living in the flesh, feeding the flesh, sowing in the flesh, And as we repent, we thank you for the beautiful promise that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we choose not to wallow in the past harvests of our life. We choose not to wallow in the yesterdays. All of us in this room have mistakes. All of us have failures. All of us have sin. All of us in this room have mistakes that the enemy would want to haunt us. Lord, we can't do anything about last year's harvest, but you're calling us today through the decisions that we make to dwell with you, to abide in you, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, there are decisions that we can make today that would make a difference in the harvest of lifetimes to come. Not only of our lifetime, but our family, our coworkers, our friends, our neighbors. So allow us to see the beauty of where you've placed us for your glory, for the good of those that we will intersect with. We pray that you would open our eyes to see the needs that maybe are in our own home and our own workplace and our own neighborhood. So we pray this in the name of your son and our savior Jesus. Amen.